Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. I'm Abby Brinker. I'm here with Alan Kudan. Hello. And today we are talking about the very broad, very sprawling history of human cannibalism. Everyone's favorite topic. It's fascinating to me. Definitely, I think, a taboo in certain parts of the world, including the U.S. So it was a bit taboo in the Brinker household. Sure. And I'm going to prepare everybody now. This is going to be our longest series ever to date. Uh, so far. You just wait till we do our multi-part series on the history of Diablo. <laughs> God. And it's going to include new episode formats. So it's going to be a few history episodes focusing on the history of cannibalism because, again, it's incredibly vast. What actually sparked us to do the topic of cannibalism right now is that someone we know... Desperation after the snowstorm. (laughs) Someone we know reached out to us, more will be revealed soon about this, reached out to us about wanting to do a really involved deep dive into a very specific subgenre of cannibalism film. And it is a subgenre that I am so excited about. So that kind of prompted this. And so that's going to be a new format where we bring this guest on and we talk, you know, again, in a really involved way about this very specific subgenre. But we didn't want to do that right without, of course, bringing you the history of cannibalism, which is, like we said, a big boy. Some might say it's a lot to swallow. (laughs) There you go. And then, of course, we're going to close things out with cannibalism stories on Lunatics Library. So, Buckle up, because at the end of four or five weeks, you're going to have everything in your brain that you ever needed and didn't want to know about human cannibalism. All right. So enough chewing the fat. Let's get on with this. Oh, there we go. Very good. First of all, I want to say that we are not here to judge. We're going to talk about this, but there are many complex (laughs) reasons that cannibalism occurs, right? It's not all serial killers. In some societies, it's like a very normal and spiritual practice. There's a very complex history of discrimination and other things that go with it. So we are open mind, open hearts coming into this topic, okay? Yeah, we're pro-cannibalism around here, apparently. I'm not saying we're pro-cannibalism. I'm saying open mind, open hearts. I'm going to try to bend the way that you think about this as we go. And I think I'll be successful. I mean, that's, that's the cannibal motto. Open mind, open hearts. (laughs) Uh, Content warning. Of course, we are going to talk about some graphic themes. We are going to talk about people eating people. What? (laughs) Um, Some of these reports, right, are believed to be historically accurate that we're going to cover. And some are believed to be perpetuated as a way for Westerners to paint indigenous cultures as primitive. So we're going to discuss that a bit as well. I also want to warn that the history of cannibalism is again, not one fluid story. Every continent and region pretty much has its own history with it. Every continent? Pretty much. And in some cases, many different practices, right, exist within regions. So it's very nuanced, but we're going to do our best to represent these things as accurately as we can. So again, we're going to try to be as extensive as possible without being too dry. But there's really good wikipedia pages that list like all of the incidents of known cannibalism throughout history and obviously we're not going to cover every single incident that has ever happened but if you're interested in in that sort of list which is usually really interesting to me i definitely suggest that you go check that out and before we dive into the sources which is going to take me a full 10 minutes to read i just want to say special thanks to betsy hillstead for research help on this one 
Okay, I'm going to, and how this is going to work, I'm going to say today's, I'm going to say the sources now in this first episode, and they're going to apply throughout the whole history. But just so you guys know, these are the sources for the whole thing. Okay. So the sources for this topic, a TED-Ed video, a brief history of cannibalism, a National Geographic article, Cannibalism, the Ultimate Taboo is Surprisingly Common by Simon Warall, an Origin of Everything video on the history of cannibalism, a Vox article by Phil Edwards, an academic paper by Bart Wagemakers, Incest, Infanticide, and Cannibalism, Anti-Christian Imputations in the Roman Empire, a documentary from 2001, The Real Life Hannibal Lecters, a piece in the Laugham's Quarterly by Bess Lovejoy, A Brief History of Medical Cannibalism, a Smithsonian Magazine article by Sarah Everett's Europe's Hypocritical History of Cannibalism, a complex article by Carla Rodriguez on Army Hammer, a Quartz article by Corinne Putrell, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History by Bill Shutt, which is a book, a nonfiction book that, that I read, History.com article, 10 Things You Should Know About the Donner Party by Evan Andrews, Wikipedia, and an HBO documentary called Thought Crimes in the Case of the Cannibal Cop. There you go for a little preview of what's to come. Meat. So we're going to cover everything from the earliest evidence of cannibalism millions of years ago to, as I just said, the cannibal cop in New York, right? So we're really going to kind of... Cannibal cop? You never heard of the cannibal cop? Who's the cannibal cop? Oh, when I first moved to New York, it was like this huge case and it really like scared me. It's a cop that was a cannibal? Well, it's complicated, but yeah. Oh. Well, so we'll talk about that as we get there in the timeline of history, but it's going to be... I don't know. I think that's a good starting point. (laughs) Let's start with the cannibal cop and let's work our way backwards. So before we get into any of that, we should define cannibalism. Cannibalism is the act of consuming another individual of the same species as food. There are many nuances here and some debate among scholars. So for example... Is eating the placenta after birth a form of auto-cannibalism? Whoa. We're going to do our best to navigate the topic again with our limited scientific training. <laughs> uh, but today we are focusing specifically on human cannibalism. But I didn't realize how common this was in animal species. Beyond just black widow spiders and praying mantis, which are kind of like known for cannibalism, more than 1,500 species of animals have been identified by scientists as exhibiting cannibalistic behavior that may seem like a big number but i'm assuming that also includes insects Hmm. just take a look at beetles there are over four hundred thousand different species of beetles holy shit that's a lot a lot of beetles right? Four hundred thousand species of beetles yeah it's way too many yes well no no it's not I mean, it's just overwhelming no, to think about because this that. is a judgment-free zone. That's right. That's what you said earlier. <laughs> We're all inclusive. Yeah. You know, if it was di- f- 1,500 different species of mammals, that might be a lot. It's not. It definitely includes insects. So, you know. But it also includes, like, reptiles and other things. Right. But in the overall grand scheme, mm-hmm. cannibalism is drastically in the minority of species. Okay. Well, that's good context. And of course, like animal cannibalism is also exasperated as we see in humans when there's famine or drought or other shortages of food. Sure. I'm just trying to think like, yeah, it's, it, you're the, the whole conversation about eating the placenta was interesting. So after arthropods or anything with an exoskeleton sheds their shell, mm-hmm. they'll often eat the shell mm-hmm. because, well, 
they they just do. You know, that's it's calories, it's right. protein, it's whatever the hell the shell is made out of. But is that auto cannibalism? Right, probably. Who who can say? When we think of cannibalism, at least when I think of cannibalism, yeah. Sorry, not trying to project onto you. <laughs> uh-huh. I think of killing something in order to consume it. Yes, and so that's an important point to make. We're about to define all these different types of cannibalism. That being said, cannibalism is not the same thing as murder, right? And so, in some cultures, there are there's like funerary ritualistic cannibalism where after somebody dies naturally, the tribe eats their body as a way to honor that person's death. Sure. So it is not only killing somebody to eat them, but that is a part of the history that we'll talk about. As soon as I said killing, I realized that's also unfair. Hmm. I think I picture it as doing injury. Sure. You know, it doesn't have to result in death because, mm-hmm. you know, we've, uh, yeah, you know what? I'm thinking of uh, that scene in Game of Thrones. I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of some names uh-huh. just so, <laughs> just in case anyone's for some reason still on the Game of Thrones bandwagon <laughs> where uh, someone is imprisoned, dismembered in the very, very literal sense of that. Sure. And that is consumed right in front of him. Mm-hmm. That seems like crazy cannibalism. Yeah, we're going to talk about literally a case, a modern case of exactly what you just said. So you're you're hitting the nail on the nose. But yeah, there's no murder involved in that situation. No, there doesn't have to be. But definitely maiming. Well, I mean, yeah, if if you're limiting the view of cannibalism to taking away murder or death, then yeah, there has to be maiming because you're eating somebody while they're alive. That's gross. <laughs> As I think we just kind of demonstrated, the history of cannibalism is going to be surprising in some ways, mainly that it is considered a taboo in modern societies, despite its rather prominent history. Like it has not always been that way. And again, there's there's like reasons for this. A lot of them have to do with the prions. What are the prions? The prions are the, the what is the thing? I don't know if it's a bacteria or a virus or something in the brain. Oh, Kuru. Kuru is caused by yeah. ingesting prions. Yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about that. Exactly it was what I was just about to say. One thing is that cannibalism can make people sick. And that's part of the reason why there's this taboo. It's actually a Kuru, which we'll talk about as a fatal brain disease that you get from eating the brain of humans. It's like mad cow disease. Exactly. Yeah. In his book, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, Bill Shutt makes the case that cannibalism actually makes perfect sense. After all, we see it throughout the animal kingdom, and humans seem to be the only species with any fear of cannibalism. That's not true. Prove me wrong. I'm sure that if you took one of the really, really intelligent species, Mm -hmm. like dolphins, and you showed them videos of dolphin (laughs) cannibalism, they would get freaked out. That's a good point. I mean, I'm... I'm, This is a hypothesis. I don't have... The funds? The empirical testing Mm -hmm. to back up that claim but can you disprove it sure you can yeah i bet there's studies done about dolphins not being able to watch a video and understand what they're watching okay we're getting off topic here (laughs) we're gonna kick things off here by defining a few different types of cannibalism just some vocab terms that might come up throughout at a high level we have endo and exo cannibalism 
Endocannibalism is the act of eating a deceased person who is the member of your social group. Exocannibalism is eating someone outside of your social group. So like if you're not Facebook friends? <laughs> exactly. No, more so like if, if somebody is part of your village or tribe, they're in your social group. If it's a or, or war homeowners criminal, association. Right. If it's a war criminal, that's outside of your social group, right? Oh. Or a war captive, I should say. I was going to say, like, bring, bring the war criminal home. The whole <laughs> nation gets to eat him. No, that's what literally has happened a lot. That's pretty cool. Survival cannibalism, obviously, is when people eat people as a way to survive extreme circumstances. Ritual cannibalism is when cannibalism is used in ritual, sometimes funeral rites, sometimes war uh, or victory rituals. Pathological cannibalism, think Jeffrey Dahmer or a serial killer. Sexual cannibalism cannibalism where somebody is getting sexual gratification that's their motivation they get off on it is that different from autoerotic cannibalism yes i think autoerotic cannibalism would be a subgenre of that we have symbolic cannibalism think the eucharist the act of eating a wafer that symbolizes eating the body of christ and this actually comes up more than i expected throughout history and then, of course, we have auto-cannibalism, the act of eating your own body parts. So those are just some, like, broad definitions as we go through. I'm already very uncomfortable. Oh, good. I'm glad we're going to spend five episodes here. <sighs> but you're going to challenge maybe the way you think about it throughout this because you have an open mind. Are you trying to get me to accept cannibalism? I'm not trying to get you to accept cannibalism for yourself. I'm trying to get you to accept cannibalism for different situations outside of yourself. What does that mean? It means maybe there are some instances or rituals that happen throughout history that are actually not so scary and disgusting. That the people who did them believed that they were infused with meaning and honor. Okay. I think the hang-up is that I get really, really grossed out by pathological cannibalism. Okay, that's like a, such a small drop in the bucket with what we're going to talk about. Well, okay, so maybe we just don't talk about it. Okay, we will, because to me it's the most interesting. Okay. Okay, <laughs> but we won't talk about it for a while. So we're going to start off with Neanderthals. The, the Neanderthals. So it may or may not be surprising to you, but Europe is actually the location of the first fossil evidence of cannibalism. I'm, I'm going to say that's not surprising. Well, there you go. Aren't you curious why? Why? Simply just because we've spent so much time developing Europe and like digging. I want to say that it's a lot of like no stone left unturned. I think I, I feel like you can find these fossils all around the world. You can. It's just in Europe, which was also like close enough to like the cradle of humanity. Right. Hmm. We've just done so much excavation that we found a ton of those, a ton of the available fossils. Yeah, for sure. So French paleontologists found... Is this is this the thing where they found the, the bone with like human bite marks on it? Yeah, so all of the early evidence that, that we're going to talk about is that. French paleontologists found that 100,000-year-old Neanderthal bones had been broken apart in a cave in a way that suggested that they were extracting the bone marrow and brains. And there were marks left on the bones from tools which suggests that the meat of the body and even the tongue had been eaten. Similar evidence has been discovered over and over and over again from this era. Quoting from the Smithsonian Magazine article, quote, In one particularly grisly discovery at the El Cidron Cave in Spain, 
paleontologists discovered that an extended family of 12 individuals had dismembered, skinned, and then eaten other Neanderthals about 50,000 years ago. Now, one thing to note here, Bill Shutt, who wrote that book, has an entire chapter in his book dedicated to the debate that Neanderthals are our ancestors or not, meaning scholars debate whether Homo sapiens evolved directly from Neanderthals. Most believe that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and, you know, Paleolithic humans coexisted as different species for 50,000 years with very little inbreeding. Yeah, and then we fucked them up. (laughs) Also interesting, archaeologists have found that Neanderthals' brain capacity was 100 to 150 liters bigger than that of Paleolithic humans. All of that being said, there is evidence that the common ancestor between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens participated in cannibalism before more advanced hunting methods were developed millions of years ago. So even though there's proof of Neanderthals committing cannibalism, which may or may not be an ancestor of humans, which is, again, this sort of like hot topic debate with archaeologists, there seems to still be evidence that the sort of previous, the the common ancestor between, right, Paleolithic humans and Neanderthals, if you believe they are separate, they also participated in cannibalism, right? So it seems like at the very earliest inception of whoever our ancestor is, it was still something that happened. So why am I nitpicking? I have no idea. Because there are many archaeological sites that have uncovered evidence of what is mostly believed to be cannibalism in Neanderthals, which, again, may or may not be an ancestor to modern humans. Though even with this evidence, some debate that the markings on the bones and other discoveries could be from post-death handling, not necessarily due to cannibalism. Some argue that these bone markings are due to funeral rites. So the kind of hypothesis is that these bones were found with these markings and, and what, again, looks like they were being processed in a way where they could have been eaten. Sure. That the flesh was being removed from the bones. So the kind of hypothesis was, okay, this could be cannibalism or it could be sort of like some sort of funeral practice that, you know, Neanderthals took part in. Mm -hmm. How do we tell? So the archaeologists were like, well, if we find animal bones with the same markings, then it's unlikely that it was a funeral practice, right? Because they're probably not, they probably aren't having funerals for the animals that they're hunting, probably. And that's exactly what happened. They found that the same markings that they found on, you know, these human bones from forever ago, they also found on animal bones. And so they are assuming that it is a hunting practice. But of course, we're never really going to know because we weren't there. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Goes Cave, located in Somerset in the UK, has archaeological proof of human cannibalism dating back 15,000 years. That's not very long. No. Not only is there archaeological evidence that cannibalism took place, it also appears that the inhabitants used human skulls as drinking vessels. Ah, the Vikings. (laughs) And we obviously don't have quite as much information on cannibalism from this time period, but it's mostly broadly agreed upon by archaeologists and scholars that it did happen in some format. So I really like split hairs, I guess, on Neanderthals versus humans and funeral rites versus cannibalism, but I'm just trying to give the current state of the understanding of this evidence and not just say, well, we have proof it happened, just so everybody kind of knows the complexity of the debates that this evidence represents in the academic world. Well, I I, I made a joke about the Vikings, but obviously that's not 15,000 years ago. It's far more recent than that. 
But are we going to talk about them at all? No. So I would love to hear what I didn't I didn't prepare any research on them. I would love to hear what your thoughts are. In Norwegian, what do you say? Instead of saying cheers, what do you say? School. School, yes, which is? Skull. Skull, that's right. Do you know why? Because they put beer in skull. Uh, Mead. Mead, yes, there you go. (laughs) So after a battle, it was tradition to the, the, the first cup of mead was drank out of the enemy leader's skull. Mm. So obviously hardcore. It is. And they just go, you know, I get why metal bands cover the Vikings so much. Uh, I mean, as, as they should, (laughs) but yeah, that was, I think, I personally think that's a pretty badass way to celebrate your victory. So that doesn't make you squeamish. No. (laughs) Okay. No, that that was, that's earned in battle. Okay. Also like how, how does that work? How do they not, how does it not leak out the eyes? I don't know, but it's something that comes up. Oh, oh, oh. A you lot. turn it upside down. What? Of you don't, course. You don't hold it. With, yeah, well, I'm picturing like the mouth down. No, do of that. course. That's, that's but still, it, there's like, you know. You just, holes. it's a shallow bowl. Yeah. There's a, you got to slurp. It's not a great cup. No, but it's a, it's like a symbolic cup. Actually, I don't know. I'm sure they had ways. To seal it up? To like make it into a pretty darn functional cup. They had a lot of practice. Yeah. I'm sure there's like one guy who's like, you know, Heinrich, come here. And he's like, check out this new cup I made. <laughs> and, you know, they seal it up. They had a handle, had a, put, get a little thermos lid. So right next to the blacksmith booth is the skull cup booth. The skull cuppery? Yeah. That's actually a theme we're going to see right up until Ed Gein of, of people converting skulls into drinking vessels. Right up until? He was the last? No, but he's a pretty modern example in the scheme of life. Mm. We also know that cannibalism was practiced in ancient Egypt and Roman Egypt during famines, especially the Great Famine of 1199 to 1202 AD. Oh, don't remind me. Those were hard times. (laughs) Also in Egypt, there is a tomb of ancient King Unis, which includes a hymn that praises him as a cannibal. Oh, Unis. So again, like that's, it's like a positive spin on cannibalism. Nobody is persecuting him. He was in a position of power and they were like, hell yeah, you earned this position of cannibalism. Nobody eats people like you, Unis. <laughs> Early Christians during the imperial era in Rome were persecuted for cannibalism. Christians were? Uh-huh. Oh, because they keep eating Christ. <laughs> in Greek mythology, Thyestes, the king of Olympia, is tricked into eating his own sons by his brothers. It seems very complicated. Do you know the story, Alan? I won't say I know it. I know of it. Okay. And this is, honestly, this is one of those stories that it fits really well into, like, stories around the campfire. Mm. Um, The oral storytelling tradition? Yeah, where, you know, this story can take place kind of anywhere, and they'll just change the names. In in this case, like yeah, this is supposedly real people that existed. Mm-hmm. You have the you have King Thyestes. Yep. And he, for complicated reasons, sure, he fucks over his brother Atreus. Yeah. Uh, and you know, ba- banishes him or something is so- something like that, right? Okay. And so his brother kills Thyestes' sons. Well, no, he kidnaps them. Then he, he he kills them, cuts off their heads and their hands, but uses the rest of the body to prepare a stew. Okay. And nephew stew. Nephew, st- yeah, nephew stew. And he 
presents the stew to Thysdes. Maybe, I don't know if there's like a peace offering or he was welcome back, but obviously he's back if he's giving him stew. Sure. Thysdes and his his like wife eat it and they're like, wow, this is the best, best stew ever. <laughs> At that point, he like, you know, I only imagine like Grand Spectacle reveals the heads and the hands and like, ha ha, you're eating your kids. Mm. He goes, no. And somehow that's how Atreus takes over. And like Thysdes is like all, I don't know. I don't know what happens to him. Yeah. I guess he just like he leaves because he's upset. Sure. That's where you get the the phrase uh, Thysdean feast. I've never heard that before. Oh, it's uh, just any. Feast of human flesh? Yep. Really? Yep. Oh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> So uh, we can we can keep using that phrase as the episode continues. Perfect. We learned something new. So what's interesting here is that pagan authors, and this is according to an academic paper by Bart Wagemakers, pagan authors named Christian festivities after Thysdes, which in turn is a heavy accusation of cannibalism. The sort of hypocritical thing is that we know from our conversations with Miranda Warzel, right, on our Samhain uh, history episode and Yule history, that... Early pagans also were very actively sacrificing people and children and eating them at different events. So it seems like there's, you know, it's probably happening during this era of when like paganism is turning into Christianity. There's also accusations of incest and infanticide during this era. And so many early Christians were accused of sacrificing children and eating them, which again might be kind of the overlap of the evolution here, right? So All of that to say is that this is definitely something that we know happened at this time and obviously something where we're seeing the the taboo start to form because people, even though this was part of ritual practice at one point and it was kind of like what it was, it's now being used kind of against people in more quote unquote like defined societies. Circling back a little bit, as long as we're close enough to Greek mythology. Sure. There is one... I, I didn't, as soon as you said Greek mythology, I was like, oh, well, I guess we're going to talk about this. And we talked about a completely different story. Mm. But that would just be Kronos and his, all, all the gods. So, you know, the, the famous picture, the famous painting, I think it's by Goya, of Saturn eating, Saturn and his sons. It is, it's, yeah, it is by Goya. I'm proud. The, the famous painting by Goya, uh, Saturn devouring his son. Mm. The, the, this, this painting. I'm not familiar, but now I am. You've never seen this before? No, it's very intense. It's very intense. And this is an in, this is going to be a unique situation because this is cannibalism out of fear. Tell me more. In this case, so Saturn, which is the Roman name for the Titan Kronos. Kronos mm-hmm. being father to the most famous Greek god. So, you know, Zeus, Poseidon. Yeah. The, the whole pantheon. Just, just about. Well, the original however many, six started, eight, however many started uh, before they procreate and get up to 12. Uh, But anyways, it was prophesized that just like Kronos had done to his own father, Uranus. Mm -hmm. Uranus. Uranus, thank you. No one likes to talk about Uranus. (laughs) It was prophesized that his own child would kill him. So every time his wife, Rhea, would wife slash sister would have a kid, he would just like snatch the baby and chomp, 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 right? Jeez. And it wasn't until Rhea gave birth to what she felt to be like the most powerful son, which mm-hmm. was Zeus, and she did a little uh, swoopty swap. Swoopty swap. Where she pretended to give birth 
And then it just, was just a watermelon. She well, she waited until he was like far away, and then she's like, "Oh, I'm giving birth." And so he comes, he comes running, getting ready to chomp. Yeah. And she had swaddled a big rock. He ate the rock. And he ate the rock because he's a, he's an idiot. He didn't realize he's the most powerful god of all time. He didn't realize that it was a rock and not a human and not a god baby. He was so afraid of these kids that he would just immediately just swallow them whole, just because he was too afraid, right? And so. Meanwhile, I think if I swallowed a rock hole, I would understand that it's different than a fleshy little baby. Well, you and Kronos have differences. Okay. You know? Yeah. One is obviously superior to the other. I mean, no, everyone has their strengths. Kronos is good at cutting off genitals with sickles. Okay. I've never, yeah, I've never been good at that. Yeah. You're good at chopping vegetables. (laughs) Ah, my calling. But yeah, then obviously Zeus, who was not devoured, grows up and kills his own father. Mm. Rock and roll, I guess. Well, dismembers him and then just throws him into Tartarus. Yeah, I mean, prophecy realized. And then all the all the ba- all the babies that he had devoured pop out fully grown. Hell yeah, they were just in his stomach, like yep. little magic school bus people. Exactly. <laughs> well, there you go. Cool. Thank you for filling in the gaps on that one. I I didn't even think about the rest of Greek mythology. <laughs> Here's another picture of Kronos devouring a kid. It was a, it was a very classic. It was a, it was a very popular Trop, like trope. Uh, just a thing to paint. Sure, it's weird. His pants are falling down in that one. Uh, it's. I mean, he was naked. This was just the modesty shroud. Mm. Jumping continents now. There are records of cannibalism in China that date back two thousand years, and and definitely predate that. But in this region, filial cannibalism seemed to be especially popular. What is filial cannibalism? Because we didn't define it at the beginning. I'm so glad you asked. It's when fully grown children offer parts of their own flesh to their parents. What? It was thought at the time that it was a way to help cure sick and elderly parents. What? Mm -hmm. So like, oh man, this is 2000 years ago. My parent is dying. The only thing that is going to help is if I give them one of my fingers. Oh no, I've got the Rona. Give me your leg. (laughs) According to texts... It seemed that this often, again, took the form of offering thigh flesh or sometimes a finger, but never a fatal dose. It wasn't like you're going to kill me. It was just like, here's a little nibble of my life force for you to help revive you. I don't need much, just your aorta. (laughs) So there's also records of human flesh being served to imperial leaders. Like, that is very widely recorded. Additionally, when famine struck China during the Mao era starvation swept the nation so we're just we're jumping ahead yeah a a lot yeah okay just i'm giving kind of like a debrief on china gotcha we're in the china section we're in the the china section yeah and so there are accounts of families actually trading children at this time in order to avoid consuming their own offspring so you knew at some point as parents that you were going to eat your kids to survive so the neighbors would swap kids so they wouldn't have to eat their own kids give me the tall one (laughs) That, that concludes our China section. Okay. Thank you. So are we back in time now? Now we're at the Crusades. <laughs> really just jumping all over here. We're jumping. We're, we're going mostly in order of time. So wait, we just did Rome, China. Now we're on to the Crusades. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. The, the logical procession of time. Why? You think the Crusades goes earlier? No, I just thought it was funny because we're talking about like different eras, like different areas of the world. Mm-hmm. And now we're just going to talk about a time period. Yeah. Very, very loosey-goosey. I like it. 
Well, what, what I'm doing is these are the moments that I think are worth talking about. And obviously there's a lot more, but I don't have, we don't have time to list everything, every single incident of can- cannibalism that happened in every single society across every span of time. This isn't a criticism. This is an enthusiastic commentary. Okay. Sounds a little judgmental. This is a judgment-free zone that was established at the beginning of this episode. And one of us seems to be abiding to that. There are texts from the 11th century that show cooked human flesh was being sold at English markets during famines. An incident that happened in the year 1098 is widely known as the first cannibalistic moment in history that was reported by several different sources. So it's like the first first-hand source that is cited by multiple, that is like backed up by multiple accounts. Does that make sense? Yes. So this is something that comes up often in when you're looking up the history of cannibalism. During the Crusades, Christian soldiers laid siege on a Syrian city called Ma'ara. After a win, the Christian soldiers ate the bodies of the Syrians. What? What was that movie? There's a whole movie about this. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, not about the cannibalism part. That's new. But the siege? Kingdom of he- Kingdom of Heaven, the 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 Ridley Scott movie. Hmm. Do you suggest it for people to watch? I mean, it's a great movie. Okay. I mean, I don't know. It's pretty insane to me that they would make a film about this like event that again is widely cited as such an important cannibalistic historic moment, and they leave that totally out. I mean, don't get me wrong. I might be confusing my Crusades. There was more than one. Mm-hmm. Hence the plural Crusades. Sure. So, quoting from the Smithsonian article, Thereafter, the facts get murky. Some chroniclers report that the bodies were secretly consumed in quote-unquote wicked banquets, born out of famine and without the authorization of military leaders. Other reports suggest the cannibalism was done with a tacit approval of military superiors who wished to use stories of the barbaric act as a psychological fear tactic in future crusade battles. I mean... If you think you're going to get eaten, that's a pretty big blow to morale. No one wants to get eaten. I mean, it's something we see in military or like war cannibalism all the time. One tribe wins, one army wins, and they're eating the other side as like the most extreme fear tactic that they can think of. Yeah, I mean, think they're so tough and strong. You know, that's the idea. Also, like think of how important funeral rites are to so many people if your body is going to end up getting consumed by your enemy yeah it's like the ultimate loss that's a bit that's a that's a pretty big uh you know what what's the word am i looking for tragedy i'm gonna say insult yeah sure now we're gonna jump ahead again this is what i'm calling sort of the mid-history portion but this next thing that we're gonna talk about is one of the most defining moments in the history of cannibalism Really? Yes. Why? Because not only does it give us the word cannibalism, but it sort of sets the tone for how all of modern history and everything after this point views, especially in the West, and responds to cannibalism. Okay. To understand where the word cannibalism came from, we must talk about Kilinago, or the island Caribs, an indigenous people of Lesser Antilles in the Caribbean. As you may have connected, the Caribbean is named after the island Caribs. Quoting from Wikipedia here, At the time of Spanish contact, the Kilinago were one of the dominant groups in the Caribbean, which owes its name to them. They lived throughout northeastern South America, Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, 
and the Windward Islands, Dominica, and possibly the southern Leeward Islands. Historically, it was thought that their ancestors were mainland peoples who had conquered the island from their previous inhabitants, the Igniri. However, linguistic and archaeological evidence contradicts that notion as mass immigration and conquest. The Kalinago language appears not to have been Caribbean, but, like that of their neighbors, the Tiano. Irving Rouse and others suggest that a smaller group of mainland peoples migrated to the islands without displacing their inhabitants, eventually adopting the local language, but retaining their traditions of a South American origin. Whoa. End quote. That was, a, that was a block of text right there. Yeah. So, just, just a little bit about the history of the people of the Caribs. Okay, so we're just establishing... Just setting it up. S- setting up where these people originated. Yeah. Because they're all on these islands now. Yep. But they didn't start on the islands because the islands are small. Yeah, right. Okay, got it. So then we get the section of this, right, where we all... <laughs> and I don't know how if this was what you had, but when I grew up, there was a section in my like middle school history class about quote-unquote explorers, right? Ah, the conquistadors. Yes, who left Spain, entered the conquistadors here, who are not really explorers, but more so invaders and rapists and kidnappers and all of these other things. But the Spanish invaders quickly... That's not fair. They're also extortionists, Mm -hmm. murderers, bullies, Mm -hmm. and definite racists. There you go. (laughs) So the Spanish invaders quickly spread that the Kalinago people were cannibals, roasting human flesh and also the ritual cannibalism of war captives. So there's some disagreement, again, between anthropologists about whether or not ritual cannibalism even happened with these people and to what degree. But it is kind of broadly accepted that, yes, cannibalism was, to some degree, part of their culture. But stay with me. This is where it's going to get complicated. What what year are we in now? Mid-1500s. Okay. So, you know, I guess... 14, 1500s. Okay. Past the Middle Ages. Yeah. But it's still very much like, ah, you hate this person, you just call them a witch. In this case, you just call them a cannibal, and then you have the the, the full legality to exploit these people because they are subhuman. Exactly. That's exactly what's about to happen. And I want to point out now... The hypocrisy of that, as I mentioned at the beginning, right, there's a lot of cannibalism going on very socially in Europe. So we're going to we're going to tie that in right after this. Enter Christopher Columbus, who is just the worst. And so he goes, he interacts with the people of the Cribs and he reports back to Queen Isabella that most of the indigenous people he had met were peaceful and welcoming, with the exception of a tribe of people on the Caribs that were violent and cooked and ate their prisoners. Some believe that Christopher Columbus actually coined the term cannibal, by the way. But we can see the evolution of the word carib to cannabay to cannibal. The invaders mispronounced their name, right, the name of the people. Some might say they butchered it. And called them, (laughs) very good, cannibs instead of caribs. According to Merriam-Webster, the first known use of the word cannibal was 1553. Merriam is... A smart lady. Christopher Columbus was was meant to be like, yeah, the Canibs instead of the Cribs because he misunderstood the name. That's because he's an idiot. And that's how it evolved into Cannibal. We should do a whole episode on the horror that Christopher Columbus was. (laughs) Yeah, if we even want to waste our time. So the word started as a way for colonizers to dehumanize the indigenous people that they were encountering. Queen Isabella of Spain 
decided to give invaders permission to capture and enslave anyone they encountered that were eating humans. So she made it a law that, okay, if you discover, which is so ridiculous because she doesn't own this land, but she made it a law that for any of her invaders, if they encountered somebody who is a cannibal, they could automatically enslave them. Again, all of this was just done as a way, right, to justify the enslavement of other humans. Yep. So, of course, Christopher Columbus started to use this to capture and enslave anyone that resisted his attempts to pillage and raid their land, regardless of cannibalism. That being said, there's some controversy over how accurate these legends were, as they were born from Spanish invaders who were trying to paint the indigenous people as primitive. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, though there's some who do believe that cannibalism was part of, you know, it was very common to be a ritualistic practice in kind of like smaller indigenous communities. But obviously at this time, these quote-unquote explorers were really blowing things out of proportion and anyone that they encountered, they were like, oh, they're a cannibal just so that they could kind of pillage and rape and plunder, you know? So everything is a little bit murky. Can I share a quick conquistador anecdote? Sure. I'm going to butcher this one because I don't remember many of the details, but it's kind of fun. It's about Magellan. Okay. Magellan, I think, again, this I'm not fact-checking this one whatsoever, and I'm trying to remember this from, I've heard this years ago. So bear with me here. Mm-hmm. So Magellan was in the Philippines or one of the Philippine islands, or that, that area of the world. Sure. He was trying to like plant the flag, being like, this is an area, like we're, we're, this is ours now or something. Mm-hmm. And somebody just like one of the locals just went up to him and just like punched him in the face. Wow. And, you know, Magellan is like, how dare you? And then just like quickly realized that his life was in danger. And so he has to like, he's like running away, trying to get back to the ship. And they're like throwing, they're like throwing like spears and everything, just trying to kill Magellan because like, fuck this guy. Yeah. You know, he gets back, he reports like these people are just such assholes. Yeah. We have to like go arrest them. And so they send like money or something to like uh, establish like a security force over there or something. Mm-hmm. And then they end up using the, those funds to build a statue of the guy that punched Magellan in the face. Wow. <laughs> there you go. So that story is completely butchered and not how it went down. I just remember there's a statue of the guy that fucked up Magellan. Very good. We love that. Cannibalism was believed to be part of the culture in parts of the Solomon Islands, New Guinea, New Zealand, the Congo, the Amazon Basin, and there was flesh markets in in Melanesia, just to name a few. And I didn't know this, but Fiji was once called the Cannibal Isles. That's fun. Uh, it's, it's probably one of those tactics, like Iceland and Greenland, swapped to confuse their enemies. Yeah. I mean, are you, do you want to visit the Cannibal Islands? I don't. I do. Well, okay, that's because you're weird. Pretty good tactic to keep people clear. Sure. So we're going to talk about some of these uh, specific peoples a little bit more in a minute. But I want to talk for a second about ritual cannibalism. Quiz time, Alan. You ready? Uh Uh-huh. What is it called when you consume a person from within the same community? Cannibalism. Endocannibalism. Half credit. No. Ritual cannibalism was sacred and happened within a specific set of rules and boundaries, depending on the people and the circumstances. In many cases, the idea was to keep the dead within the tribe. It also seems like a better faith than putting loved ones beneath the dirt and grime of the ground. In the instances where cannibalism was happening in violent acts, 
It was often as a way to honor the lives of those captives. It was seen as a religious ritual. Sure. So I'm not trying to deny that cannibalism did happen in some of these places, but I'm trying to set the scene of that. It was not a barbaric act. It was like this beautiful ceremony, especially when it was tribe elder or somebody within the same tribe. The idea was to keep them, to keep their life, their soul within the tribe. And it was seen as a better fate and a more beautiful fate than just sticking them in the dirty ground. Sure. These acts were filled with extreme intention and spiritual belief, totally unlike the very commonplace cannibalism throughout the West, which we're going to talk about now. The irony of what we've discussed with Christopher Columbus is that in Europe at the same time, the 15th century, Medicinal cannibalism was a fairly normal practice, which is kind of an understatement. It was a very normal practice. Mummia is ground up mummified body parts, turned into a powder, and added to balms, teas, other drinks, or just consumed as a powder. What? It is believed to be a cure for almost every physical sickness, including bruising, nausea, even epilepsy. What, where in the world are we right now? We're in Europe. Still, oh my goodness. And so where were medieval Europeans getting all of these mummies to create mummia? Egypt. It's a great question, Alan. Yes. They were being supplied by stolen mummies from Egypt. Oh, for real? Yes. That's terrible. It's like the, the Futurama episode where they keep eating the, yes, little, exactly. the little jerky mummies. I was thinking that this morning when we were watching it. That is, right, until the demand grew out of control. And at that point, producers of mummia started to steal dead bodies from European graveyards. They should have started there. How the hell would people... It's like the uh, the powdered rhino horn. Mm. Once it's been powdered, you have absolutely no way of knowing it was actually rhino horn. Is that something people eat? Oh, uh, so rhino horn in traditional Chinese medicine mm-hmm. is a cure... It's a cure-all... Uh, for many things, but mainly it's like uh, an aphrodisiac. Hmm. But once it's powdered, well, once it's powdered, it's the same molecular compounds of like hair. You know, <laughs> right. it does absolutely nothing. Right. But obviously, that's like one of the reasons why rhinos were hunted nearly to extinction because of these stupid traditional medicines. Interesting. Quoting from Lapham's Quarterly. Quote, mummy was a significant commodity by the 18th century. Get your mummy. (laughs) Taken in tinctures for bleeding or used in plasters against venomous bites or joint pain. So significant, in fact, that there was also a thriving trade in fraudulent mummy made from the poor, criminals, or animals. In 2007, relics were found in a Parisian pharmacy and said to belong to Joan of Arc were shown to come from an Egyptian cat mummy. So relics that were found that were thought to belong to Joan of Arc, like part of her personal apothecary. They're just then like the Paris version of Rite Aid. Right. From obviously a long time ago. And it was actually. It says 2007. That's when they found them. They found an old pharmacy. Yeah. They found what they thought was Joan of Arc's like personal apothecary set. Got it. And it was actually. Made from an Egyptian cat mummy, not a human mummy. I'd like to think that it's just a pharmacy that's been around for a very long time. And like, you know how when people don't come pick up their prescription, it just sits on the shelf. Yeah. 
And it's like, yeah, Joan of Arc never came to get her medicine because she got burned. She got burned. Uh, she called in a prescription for her Egyptian cat mummy potion. <laughs> and this was not a short phase, the use of mummia. It was even listed in the Merck Index, and there are records of mummia being used for over a century. What's the Merck Index? It's like a Grey's Anatomy type book in the medical world. It's Grey's like- Anatomy? You know, like the that, show? No, that's the name of the medical book. Oh, I have no, I, I have no, I, it's like I, the official anatomy book. Really? Same with like Merck. It's like the official like treatment book. Oh, it's a textbook. Yeah, I, I had mean, no obviously idea. they're updated over. That time. makes so much more sense because I know it's like like the DSM. Doctor Gray is a character on the show. Yeah, it's like why do we care about her body? No, <laughs> but wait, there's more. So at this time in Europe. People also used for only for only five payments of 1995. You too can get a mummy. There you go. At this time in Europe, people also used liquid and powdered blood, human livers, brain oil, and other body parts as medicine. Human fat was also seen as an incredibly important remedy for broken bones, among other ailments. In Germany, between the 16 and 1800s, executioners would make extra money by selling body parts for use in medicines. Okay, interesting. I feel like this is a... We, we talked about this during necromancy. Mm-hmm. How the buying and selling of human remains was, uh, has been like a, a staple of society since like inception. Yes. Uh, and so this case, the executioners kill the person. I guess they had to do double duty and like dispose of the bodies as well. Yeah. Or it's like in uh, Squid Game where they kind of had a black market thing going on where they, right. Ooh, you know, paid right. off the burial guy and took the body and repurposed it. Yeah. In that case, they're selling organs. Back then, I don't think they could do organ transplants yet. No, they're, uh, they're selling it for these remedies. But I mean, it's it's the same thing, just in a different era where it's like, yeah, we're selling a part of the body for medical purposes. In this case, it's just like, enjoy your liver juice to cure your broken bones. Yeah. And yeah, it's like a weird, it's, it's it, I feel like it's a weird side hustle, but probably it, it wasn't even taboo. It's just right. like that's ex- the expected part of their income where like the executioner's boss gets to pay them less because they're also working for tips. Right. And it's very similar. I feel like like we had this conversation a while ago with Adam Bashian of Dark Interiors on the podcast. But there is like this taboo now, even about like human body parts in general and having them. When to exactly to your point, like the buying and selling of human dead bodies was a huge thing throughout the history of humans. It's only the last few hundred years that these sort of taboos and societal looking down on those things has happened. There is a long-standing history of medical cannibalism in Europe. The Laugham's Quarterly article points out that during this time, most of the use of body parts was for quote-unquote sympathetic medicine, which I thought was very interesting. What does that mean? Meaning skulls would be used to treat migraines and dizziness, fat to prevent bruising, powdered blood to treat bleeding, So their sort of idea of medicine at the time was like, oh, if you use one skull, you can treat this head thing. Or if you use blood, you could treat this blood thing. Got it. It's like, honestly, it's like in video games Mm. where it's like, okay, to upgrade your chest armor, you need to break down other chest armors to put in the parts. Right. Wow. That's, 
ah, I got a headache, got to eat brain. Right. At this time, it was also believed that the more violently somebody was killed or died, the more packed with nutrients their body parts would be. What? Yeah. So if you like died peacefully in your bed, it wasn't as appealing as if you were like executed or something. There is a concept here, almost similar to what we discussed on the zombie episode, where people thought that the vitality of the body stuck around for a bit, that the spirit or soul was still in the body for a while after death. So the sooner that you could harvest the organs or body parts, the bigger your chance was at harvesting and consuming some of that ethereal power. Hmm. I wonder how much of that, it still has to be fresh to be consumed, you know? Like, like, what's the causality here? Was it just that, like, after a certain amount of time, like, consuming these things was unsafe? No. I mean, maybe. Maybe that was, like, the origin of it. But, yeah, they it was, like, remember in the zombie episode how they believed that after death there was, like, a period of time sure. where the soul was still there? Yep. It's the same idea where there's, like, and it might be, the root of that might be, to your point, before they kind of understood the science of it, that mm-hmm. the body would go bad. Yep. It might be kind of rooted in that, but it was the same belief that there was like an expiration date on these like almost like magical powers that that they would get from the using the blood or using the brain right that it's not there's a shelf life i guess is the point sure and of course there is a very fine line between vampirism and cannibalism so let me just say this can you say say it again vampirism it's a cool word (laughs) there's quite a bit of blood sucking going on at this time of blood from both the living and the dead. Something that Europeans alive during the Renaissance thought could be a bit of a fountain of youth. There was even a recipe recovered from a Franciscan apothecary in 1679 for something called blood jam. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Here is a quote. And the it in this uh, is referred to like dried and sticky mass of blood that's already been processed to be that. So they've well, they've already made the jam. No, they've made it into, they've like hardened it and done some things, but we're going to pick up like halfway through. Quote, place it upon a flat, smooth table of soft wood and cut it into thin little slices, allowing its watery part to drip away. When it is no longer dripping, place it on a stove on the same table and stir it into a batter with a knife. What? When it is absolutely dry, place it immediately in a very warm bronze mortar and pound it, forcing it through a sieve of finest silk. When it has all been sieved, seal it in a glass jar, renew it in the spring of every year, end quote. (laughs) Uh, So somewhere along the line, someone was standing over someone's shoulder saying, you're making the blood jam wrong. (laughs) Yeah. That's not how I read it on Google. Oh my God, let me show you. Jesus, I have to do everything myself. (laughs) King Charles II is said to have paid 6,000 pounds, which at the time was probably like freaking a billion dollars, to a professor to craft a recipe for him for a distilled powdered skull, which became known as, quote unquote, the king's drops. I don't even know what to make of this. The fact that he commissioned a recipe leads me to believe that there one didn't exist. Right. So he's just like, you know what? I want skull. You, sir, figure out how to make a good skull recipe. It was for medicinal use. I want a headache medicine made out of the finest skull because I'm the king. Got it. Okay. Which I think is important because I want to pause and check in with you. 
because at the beginning of our cannibalism exploration, you had said, right, that you're in your mind, cannibalism was like the act of killing or torturing. Sure. But when we're talking about cannibalism in Europe, it's very uh, muted, right? It's it's kind of like we're going to turn blood into blood powder. Like you're not gnawing on a femur. Right. They're just eating people post, post-mortem. They're just, they got these bodies. Yeah. They're bored. They don't have TV yet. <laughs> so they're just figuring out fun things to do with them. Yeah. But does that sort of like defy how you thought about cannibalism before? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's fair. Mm. So are, are we going to include recipes in like the description for patrons for patrons for the king's drops and (laughs) blood jam yeah we're going to talk about this a bit later but it's interesting because cannibalism is actually not illegal what is illegal is defiling a corpse is necrophilia obviously is murder obviously but in the u.s and most of europe it's not illegal if you do it without consent of course it's could be assault or you know it falls under other charges but if somebody is consenting to it then it, there's nothing legally wrong with it huh <laughs> that's a surprising one mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just imagining the founding fathers just like going through a checklist slavery fine cannibalism fine gay marriage no 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 <laughs> so i want to spend a little bit of time talking about the foray people of papa new guinea okay what what where, where are, where's New Guinea? So it's like right north of Australia, right next to Indonesia. Classic Oceania. So the Foray people believed that the eating of the deceased relatives would cleanse their spirits. In this instance, it was funerary and ritualistic cannibalism, hmm. meaning that individuals could make a will, so to speak, about what they wanted to happen to their body after death. So if for some reason you didn't want your body to be consumed after death, no problem. But in some cases, people did ask for others, their family, mostly, to consume their body after death. It was like a, a something that they wanted to happen. This is literally the polar opposite of Judaism, where if you are in the even just the presence of a dead body, if you've touched a dead body, your spirit and your body is now tainted and needs to be cleansed before you can move forward. But that's like rooted in like a hygienic reason, probably, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about like the things you've told us in the past about being kosher and how that was really tied to like health and safety of food. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it. So like the way that the body is purified after coming in contact with the dead. So, you know, say you step into a cemetery because that counts, uh, at least for the the Kohanim. Your body is now defiled and impure. And the way that it is purified is by going through the process of mikvah. Mm-hmm. which is a ritual bath, which is done in water flowing from the earth. Mm. So it has to be like an under, it's like a like natural a, water source, not natural water source. Like they have these like mikvahs in Israel and whatnot, like the, the holy areas where you, it's like an uh, yeah underground wellspring uh, and you just like go in and then a bunch of naked men wash you. How are Jewish people processed after death? They, they assume they don't, then they're not buried in cemeteries. Traditionally, the, the, the processing of Jewish remains is a very minimalist approach. So there's no embalming of any sort. Mm-hmm. You don't need, you're not even supposed to be put into a coffin, really. Especially now, like what we picture, like a modern coffin with like the seals and the padding and everything. If it's going to be a coffin, it's going to be like a wooden box. 
So it is like an earth burial still. Yeah, like the most traditional is like a sack. They throw you in a sack, they throw you in the ground. So can I ask a question then? In like Brooklyn, New York, say, which is a a very large Jewish population, in New York in general, the city, very large Jewish population. If you are buried in the ground, your family members say your cousin passes away, you bury them in the ground in a cemetery. Yep. Then how in a major city do you have a proper mikvah after is or is now in a modern sense you can bathe in a different way or do you need to like literally go and find like a natural water source? That's a great question. See what happens when we Google mikvah NYC. I just Googled and the first top hits there's like four around Manhattan, a cluster of five right in Williamsburg. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the very first one, there's one. The apparently there's a mikvah right. It says right by the Central Park Zoo. <laughs> so I assume it's it's probably like some sort of pool. Obviously, it's there's no like natural spring water that's filtering under the grounds of New York. So you know this. The I I just clicked on one that's on the the Upper East Side, and it yeah it looks like a, a spa. like like a spa like a pool, and I'm sure it's fed from a natural source. Right. Uh, from like the groundwater pumped up from the groundwater because you know everyone's a stickler for tradition sure Ar- archaic practices brought into the modern age <laughs> i'm sorry this is just so interesting this comes with a full mikvah checklist pdf of how to prepare wow where does some remove any body hair that is generally removed ideally not on the day of immersion oh because they don't want hair in their pool cut and file nails remove nail polish remove makeup Clean ears and earring holes. <laughs> earring holes. Ah, interesting. So this also would only apply to women. So that women can get mikvahs as well. Because mm-hmm. I don't think men are allowed to get piercings. Uh, again, we're talking very traditional Judaism. Like Orthodox, right? Have you ever had a mikvah? Uh, no, I refused. Uh, <laughs> blow and clean nose, wash hair, clean teeth, parentheses, use toothpick slash floss. Oh. Clean breast nipples. Breast nibbles? Nipples. As opposed to those other nipples. Those other nipples. What, <laughs> I don't... What? Wash genitals, also internally. That's very dangerous, actually. You should not do that. Please don't do that. And then, important note, from the onset of a woman's period. All right, we're not, it's okay. You don't have to read it. This is... We can assume it's problematic. Oh, it's very problematic. Well, thank you for that riveting insight into mikvahs. So let's jump back, if we will, to the foray people of Papua New Guinea. Unfortunately, despite the fact that we've established there's, you know, very, there's a lot of very beautiful meaning behind their cannibalism, it resulted in the spread of Kuru, which is a fatal disease caused by cannibalism. Kuru is thought to be caused by the eating of the human brain by another human. Caused by those prions. Exactly. Because of the prions that are within our brains. Kuru is a brain disease very similar uh, to what Alan said before, very similar to mad cow disease. And it's derived from a foray word for shaking because the first sign is tremors. So Kuru in foray means sh- like shaking or tremors. Yeah, because your brain is freaking dissolving. Yeah. What's interesting is that some of the foray people have developed a resistance to Kuru over time, like they've evolved kind of past it. Quoting from Phil Edwards in the Vox article... Quote, the foray were adapting to cannibalism with natural selection possibly playing a role in reducing their susceptibility to the disease. Scientists have been trying to study this further, but in recent decades, 
cannibalism has been declining among the foray because of changing social mores and laws. If that continues, Kuru may be wiped out entirely. So there's two other things I want to mention before we sort of round out our early history and mid-history sections. Okay. The first is Colonial America. A 2013 excavation of Jamestown revealed evidence of cannibalism from Colonial America. The skull of a 14-year-old girl was found with markings that would indicate that she had been eaten by other people very similar to those Neanderthal bones. Right. Archaeologists believe that this happened in the winter of 1609, which of course demonstrates how difficult survival was for early colonizers and leads us perfectly into the discussion of cannibalism and the indigenous people of America. This winter, the winter of 1609, is also known as the starving time because of how many uh, colonizers died during that time. Those poor, poor colonizers. (laughs) Around this time, one man was tortured until he admitted that he killed, salted, and ate his pregnant wife. Yeah, uh, whatever. Not his crime, if he even committed it, but as soon as he said he was tortured until confession. Exactly. And I literally have a note. Remember that we cannot trust confessions that are the result of torture or manipulation. Right? That, that's right. We're going to talk now, Alan, about what I believe to be one of your favorite topics. What, what, what? We're going to talk about Native American folklore and the Wendigo. Hey, here we go. Oh, I like this. <laughs> a Wendigo is a mythological... Cre- and, and also, I'm going to pause. We, and I'm going to quickly say, we do have an early episode, very early, on the Wendigo. That exists. We're going to cover it a little bit better now because we've done 100 episodes now and we know a little bit more about what we're doing. This is going to be... Are we doing a deep dive into the Wendigo? No, absolutely okay. not. So... Certainly a topic we could redo again in the future. I think we could do one on Native American myth. Mm-hmm. Native American folk... I don't know. Native American horror. We can find We can find something. Yeah. And if you're someone with a Native American background and you want to come on and talk to us, reach out. That, that'd be incredible. Yeah. If you are a Wendigo. (laughs) (laughs) Here's our number. A Wendigo is a mythological creature from folklore originated by the indigenous people of what is now Canada and the United States, mainly Algonquin-speaking tribes. It's associated with the deepest part of winter, when famine and starvation were common. Very often, the Wendigo is depicted as an evil or malevolent entity. Hell yeah, it is. Physically, sometimes it appears with humanoid features and sometimes with animal features and sometimes a combination of both, though I found this out, which is was a new kind of thing that I just learned about the Wendigo. In its original kind of Native American roots, the Wendigo was strictly humanoid. It started to merge with werewolf mythology when Europeans got involved, and that's when we see versions of it that have animal animal characteristics. Like it's like the 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 were stag right that's uh, which is my personal favorite big giant zombie moose right <laughs> a bipedal zombie moose with claws yeah yeah the presence of the wendigo can sometimes result in possession driving people to feel extreme hunger greed murderous urges and the urge to cannibalize others here's a description from basil h johnston an ojibwe teacher and scholar Quote, the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. 
its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from separation of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. It's pretty metal. Very metal. So basically, it's a zombie. It's a zombie that, when it comes near you, makes you feel the urge to eat other people, the greedy, murderous urges. It kind of like is what people blame maybe some survival cannibalism that happened at this time on. Oh, for sure. And I think we'll get to that in a second. But I thought that the curse of the Wendigo, was it infectious? Oh, right, right. So they, if they're nearby, Mm -hmm. it causes you to crave human flesh. Yeah. And then once you give in to that urge. You become. You become the Wendigo. Right. Do you remember the movie Ravenous that we watched? Of course I remember the movie Ravenous that we watched. I think that's a good... I mean, it's obviously a Western-based storytelling, so there's obviously some appropriation that's happening there, but that's kind of a good... It's a version of the Wendigo that is more accurate to the original Native American folklore than other depictions of the Wendigo that we see. Right, but it also encompasses a lot of the cannibalism mythology from other cultures. The Wendigos in that movie, Mm -hmm. you know, following Native American lore where they look just like perfectly normal people. Yep. Or, yeah, yeah, perfectly humanoid people. However, by eating the flesh of another person, you take their power, you take their strength. Mm. And so in that movie, they kept consuming person after person and getting stronger and stronger to superhuman proportions. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it had kind of like the ability to teleport and other things because it became so powerful. Could they teleport? Yeah. Remember he would sort of like be jumping around like the person, like taunting them? I thought he was just like stupid fast. Oh, maybe. I th- I thought it was teleportation. I thought he was like straight up Batmaning him, you know, mm. where they look for the, you look away for one second and he just like he moves so fast that he's somewhere else. I guess we'll have to rewatch it. I'd love to rewatch it. It's been a few years. Do you know, Alan, what the Wachuge is without looking at the outline? No. (laughs) It's a somewhat similar entity that originated with the indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We have regional Wendigos? We do. That's fun. How have we not talked about this? I don't know. I just discovered it for the first time. That's cool. There's definitely a lot less known about it than the Wendigo. It seems like a very specific offshoot that's very regional. Well, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. This is hopefully my own ignorance flaring up, but I feel like there's not even that much known about like Wendigo lore and everything. I feel like it's only spread through like Western pop culture. The original source material of these myths doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I don't know enough about it, but you know, I would imagine you're definitely right. You, you think of Greek or Norse mythology and it's just like so fleshed out through mm-hmm. like original source material. And just like when it comes to these indigenous myths, you just don't have that. Yeah. Because of the stupid conquistadors. That's right. Fuck you, Columbus. <laughs> the Wachuge was also a cannibal creature, but it had a bit more refinement. And so the main difference is that it was thought of as enlightened and connected to ancestors and like the wisdom of, of like ancestral wisdom. 
So even though it's still it's still like cannibal, it's like a little bit less malevolent, a little more kind of like a, a wise entity. Interesting. By consuming the flesh, you get the memories and power of all those that came before you in that line. I don't know if I don't think that that's the spin. I think it's more so that the entity itself was thought of as like an ancestral being versus like, I don't know there again, I could find very, very little on it. So I'm not going to like, I guess, speculate because I'm, I don't know the, the answer. It sounded a lot like one for all the, the quirk from my hero academia. Oh, it's passed on by consuming some DNA from a, the, the person. Interesting. And then, yeah, you get the experience and strength of, of all those that came before you in that line. You just keep passing it down through the ages. Interesting. Wachuge. Wachuge. In our very early episode on the Wendigo, we discussed something called Wendigo psychosis, which is easily defined as a mental illness that causes an insatiable craving for human flesh. And again, there's a lot of controversy over this so-called mental illness because most people believe that humans can be driven to cannibalism by extreme conditions, which we know is the case. And anyone else who eats human flesh likely has a host of mental illnesses, which we're going to talk about um, in the next episode. But the most believed rationale is more of a representation of mental health than cannibalism. So in the winter months, the Algonquin people would experience a sort of cabin fever, extreme hunger, and like all Native Americans, right? Like in the winter, it was extremely difficult to survive and you were starving and hungry. Many think that this psychosis actually started as the fear of turning into a monster and cannibalizing those around them during these desolate times. I once asked to go to the nurse's office. Yeah. And the reason I gave was when to go psychosis. Are you kidding me? No. You are... <laughs> God. <laughs> Why, how did you even know that? You didn't grow up learning about the Wendigo? I never knew about the Wendigo until I met you. Well, that's that's on you. It's just hilarious that you would say... What did the nurse say? I mean, I, I don't... I think it was like, what's that? And then like... And you said, I feel the urge to eat my classmates? No, I think it was like supposed to be a joke and kind of fell flat. And I, th- I don't know, I was that kid. So you just went to the nurse anyway and got a lollipop or whatever? They don't give you lollipops. No. Do they? I don't know. I used to hang out with the nurse a lot. When I needed like a break, I would just be like, I need to go to the nurse's office. And I would just sit in there for hours. Mm. And she would just talk to me. Sure. So I think that this is a really good place to leave off for the day, for the week. What? We're done talking about the Wendigo? <laughs> we were done talking about the Wendigo. So we've covered a really large span of time. <laughs> The next episode is going to, in my opinion... Be better. Well, it's just more interesting to me. It's a lot of survival cannibalism in modern times. It's a lot of serial killer talk. It's, you know, it's some really, really interesting, more modern cases of consent oh, oh, cannibalism. It's going to be much worse. Uh, it might be a little more graphic. Don't like it. Actually, it's not going to be super graphic, but... Will there be more blood jam? No. Done with the blood jam. Unless you go to our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I think this is a good place to put a pin in it for now. Again, I know that this was not a holistic representation of cannibalism throughout early history, but we did our best to kind of to hit the highlights and to not be too boring. Okay. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much for being on this very ambitious cannibalism journey with us. We are very excited to come back next week to pick things up with more modern instances of cannibalism. Until then, stay safe, stay spooky, 
and don't eat your neighbor unless they consent because then I guess it's legal alright bye bye thanks for listening if you'd like some bonus content consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron exclusive podcast Horror Movie Club also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel you can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep, and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.